And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. And yes, it's me. I'm back. I'm live here in the land of enchantment. Now, for how long I'm going to stay live tonight, we don't know, because we've been having intermittent communications and electrical problems again. There are four major forest fires raging in northern Arizona and in northern western New Mexico tonight. And they've been causing all kinds of communications problems for some of us here further to the east. So if I suddenly disappear, that's going to be the reason. Now, the backup is Kintia is standing by. In fact, she's going to be participating in tonight's show because she's got some really interesting questions based on some things she's been reading our guest tonight. Um, So there will be continuity, but uh, if I get beamed up, you all know, uh, we'll know what's happened now. Adding to the uniqueness of tonight's show, I think this is probably the only show I've ever done or may ever do that is taking place simultaneous with a solar eclipse. If you're listening from India or China or Rangoon in Burma or Singapore, anywhere on the other side of the planet, if you uh, go outside, take your phone outside, if you're listening on your phone, and look up. With eye protection, you want heavy filtering. This is not going to be a total solar eclipse, uh, guys. It's going to be something even rarer called a ring of fire eclipse or an annular eclipse where the moon is far enough away in its elliptical orbit and we're close enough to the sun in our planetary elliptical orbit that the two don't quite coincide. The moon is a little bit smaller optically in the sky than the sun uh, this evening here in the Western Hemisphere or in the morning over there in the uh, uh, Eastern Hemisphere. And so even during maximum eclipse, you will not see totality. You will not see the um, corona, but you will see this brilliant glowing ring, this orange ring around the edge of the moon. That's the sun. That's the upper level of the uh, solar atmosphere at the limb at the edge of the sun peeking around the moon in all directions. And so it's very spectacular. And uh, Robin and I measured one of those um, many years ago here in Albuquerque when the track took it right over the Sandias. And I got some extraordinary hyperdimensional torsion field measurements. Eclipses, those alignments, they do things. They create tremors in the force. I mean, for real. So if weird things happen during tonight's show, Blame it on the eclipse. Now, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, for all of you veterans, you know what the drill is. For all you new folks, we're getting a lot of new folks, which I'm very pleased about. If you are new, you go to the web, the other side of midnight.com, click on that. That will take you to our website. Click on tonight's banner at the very uh, top of the, of the page where it says Kronos Rising with our guest Max Hawthorne listed there prominently. Click on that banner. For June 20th, the solstice. Oh, yeah, got to add, it's the solstice. That's, of course, why we're having the eclipse. Alignment, alignment, alignment. Remember back during the Clinton years when they kept saying, it's the geometry, stupid? Well, it's really the geometry. It's, I'm sorry, the economy. It's for us, it's the geometry. And tonight, it's that alignment geometry. So during the entire show, in fact, that... um, my time, mountain time, at 1240-something will be the maximum eclipse. So if you're listening, 
from the other side of the world. You can do both. Or if you click on that link, if you're here in the uh, Western Hemisphere, go to, again, the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner for the 20th. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down to my item in Radio with Pictures number four. That will give you links where you can actually see on live television the the uh, transmission of the eclipse from the other side of the world by a satellite, of course. Gosh, I remember when we had a world which didn't have those. Oh, well. Anyway, so you can prop that up on your computer or on another phone next to you, and you kind of watch the eclipse while you're listening to us. And think about that alignment, that extraordinary geometric alignment, which in the measurements we know has a major effect on Earth, on the geophysics, and yes, on consciousness. So if intriguing things happen tonight, blame it on the sun. Um, Item number one, go up to the top of my items. There are two items there, number one, number two. Part of the problem of returning the economy to some semblance of normalcy is to get people out and get them interacting in ways that are safe and allow commerce and communication and socializing to resume at something like a 90% level, but without without putting people in any kind of danger. There's been a tremendous amount of controversy, totally unnecessary controversy, around these masks. Everybody, when they're out for the time being, should be wearing masks. Why? Because if you look at those two links, number one and number two, those are scientific experiments demonstrating that masks are incredibly, I mean, I was unaware of how incredibly useful and efficient they are in cutting down transmission of everything between people who are standing or sitting together and who are talking. And you want to see some visual demonstrations. There's some cool um, laser videos where you put the laser at the right position behind the, the person coughing and you can get instant visualization of all the droplets. And believe me, it's very significant. I mean, you'll see the difference with and without wearing a mask. Even more impressive is the NBC reporter who went over to Columbia and deliberately coughed on a series of what they call cough discs, which are basically Petri dishes large enough that you can hold them six inches or so in front of your face when you don't have a mask on, when you do have masks on, and you just cough into them. And then the uh, microbiologist that this reporter, uh, you know, involved in the experiment took them back to the lab. They let them grow. And what was really stunning, not just to me and not just the reporter, but to the microbiologist, even simple bandanas, even simple cloth coverings, even the stupidest, you know, thing we used to put around our faces when we played cowboys and Indians is incredibly effective at cutting down transmission of microorganisms and viruses and bacteria, all the same, all the same, you know, genre, from transmission between people who are trying to socialize. And that's not even counting the idea of so-called social distancing. So look at those, you know, video demonstrations. They're very graphic. They're very easy to see. And they're very demonstrative of how incredibly effective it is to simply wear something for the time being when you're out in public. I mean, we're going to get ahead of this problem. It's, it's, 
if you look at the history of the human race, we solve problems. And we have tremendous amounts of science now that did not exist back in, uh, you know, the 1917, uh, 18 flu pandemic. Um, but now we have to, for the time being, be a bit observant. And again, when you look at these laser videos, it's so obvious that it's incredibly effective. Even the non-surgical, the non-N95 masks are 100% efficient, according to the agar plates, from the spread of humans talking or coughing or sneezing and communicating uh, microorganisms in this way. It's amazing how the fabric, the weave of fabric, captures the droplets, captures the virus. Did you? I saw this number the other day. Did you know that the average little droplet of human spittle, sounds terrible, carries something like 800 million microorganisms? Let me repeat that. When you cough, each of those droplets, depending on size, averages millions of microorganisms that you can be shall we say, inhaled by other people in your vicinity. So that's the reason. And we now know, based on, again, good science, that the, um, uh, some of the droplets are what are called aerosolized, meaning they're not big enough to fall to the ground uh, quickly, and they hang in the air. And if you're in a room, a, a, a sealed room, a normal room, without good airflow, they can hang around for hours. So when you see visually how incredibly effective simply wearing something on your face is, I mean, it's just primitive, 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 but it's incredibly effective. And, you know, my rule of thumb is whatever works, works. So this whole political, you know, nonsense about, oh, you're making some kind of statement. Yeah, you're making a statement that you're thinking of other people and you're trying to protect your neighbors, your community, your family, your friends. And so, you know, please, I want to keep most of my audience. I want to keep all of my audience. So wear a mask. It's really, really simple. Uh, item number four I'm going to hold off on, which is really three listed in my radio of pictures, because that will kind of come up during the show. Let me introduce you to my guest tonight, because he is the most extraordinarily interesting people, people, person up to and including that he has huge two Siberian pussycats that he's raising, which are in the order of like 20 pounds. So as you know, we're kind of cat friendly here on the other side of midnight. And that's part of uh, Max's background that you'll put into your you know, subconscious and think about as we go through the rest of the evening. Okay. Max Hawthorne, known as the Prince of Paleofiction, was born in Brooklyn and attended school in Philadelphia, where he graduated from the University of the Arts. He is the author of the award-winning Kronos Rising novel series, as well as a Memoirs of a Gym Rat, an outrageous expose of the health club industry. In addition to being a best-selling novelist, he is an amateur paleontologist, a blog talk radio host, a voting member of the Authors Guild, an IGFA world record holding angler, gosh, that came up recently, and an avid sportsman and conservationist. Max's hobbies include archery, fishing, boating, boxing, and the collection of fossils and antiquities. Max lives in the greater Northeast with his wife, daughter, 
and an enormous couple of Siberian forest cats who, when they're not stalking Max's toes, sleeps on his desk, trying to prevent him from writing so he pays full attention to his pussycats. Max, welcome to the other side of midnight. <laughs> there you are. Yes. <laughs> Forgive the chuckling. No, 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 no. We, we, we try to, you know, live life happily here at the other side. What was particularly, uh, um, shall we say, amusing? Oh, it's just that uh, I've been ambushed so many times by, like, the older cat. Like, uh, he, ha- he and I have this, like, Professor Clouseau routine going on where he loves <laughs> to – I have videos of it. You know, I'm, I'm walking along, and he'll wait behind a couch or around a corner, and as I run past, he'll jump out and blast me in the back of the leg you know, like, <laughs> like a linebacker and then walk away chuckling. So it's it's just kind of funny the way you put that. I was just picturing the, his most recent ambush. Now, it, as long as we're on the subject, talk about what we were discussing before we went on the air. Um, the uh, the elder cat, his his name Mace. is what? Mace. Mace. Okay. Mace. Like the big bristly thing from the Middle Ages. Yeah. Well, he has like a, an M on his forehead too. Oh, he has another little trick that he's recently learned. What's what's that? Uh well, Mace has the uh, unnerving ability to mimic my daughter when she calls my wife. So, like, my daughter, when she's up in her room, if she needs something or she's got a problem, whatever, you know, you'll hear her go, Mommy, Mommy, like that. Right. So, uh, a few months back, I was upstairs in one of the rooms, and I, I heard this. So, I, I, I'm like, oh, she needs something. So, I come rushing out there. I'm like, hey, it's the cat. And he's like walking through the hallway going, mommy, mommy, like that. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at him. I'm like, no, you know, like that didn't just happen, you know, but, and I was like, you, 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 and then he got all sheepish looking and he walked away, you know, but I, I, he did it in my office, you know, a week or so ago right in front of me. And it's, you know, you don't expect to hear a cat imitating a person, like, you know, saying an actual word. But he does it for manipulation purposes. He realizes that, oh, the, the, the other cub in the family, you know, when she wants, you know, the, the matriarch, she makes this sound. I'll make this sound, and then I'll get a treat or something. You know? And uh, that's, that's what's going on. He's, he's, he's a con man. Now, who's, who's, who's the other cat, the uh, youngster? O- Olaf. Okay. Uh, now, are they, are they related? They're, they're half-brothers. Um, the... Uh, these cats, like Mace is like very aristocratic looking. Like if you see a picture of him, he's really very regal. Um, and his ancestors go back to the czars of Russia. I mean, he's literally descended from, quote, cat royal. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Let, let me, let me, let me, hang on, hang on. Let me check your radio with pictures. Uh, we do not have any pictures in your section of Max. We oh, must Mace. remedy that. Mace, I'm sorry, Mace. You're Max. <laughs> Yes. Thanks, Max. Oh, that could get complicated tonight. If you could send Kintia through Skype a, a nice image of Regal Mace, that's, that'd be really cool. And Olaf, if you've got two of them, that'd be really cool. Because I don't know how many cats, Max, um, talk. It's the first one I've ever met in my life. I could tell you that much. But uh, the other, I, I can't picture Olaf talking. We we Olaf has like a whole bunch of Nicknames like uh, the village idiot and <laughs> things like that. He just constantly getting into trouble, 
putting his sticking his neck out. I don't know how many lives he's got left lately. Isn't it intriguing, given that we're going to be talking about wildlife and really big wildlife later on, how these little guys have such personalities? They they, they do. They're they're incredibly intelligent, um, especially the uh, the older one. I mean, I, I see him like uh, he watches my daughter as she sleeps, like watches over her. He'll lie in her bed all night protecting her. You know, no monsters under the bed in there. So <laughs> it's an amazing animal. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let, me, let me dive some uh, into in kind of you because I'm always intrigued with people who are dinosaur aficionados. I I became hooked decades and decades ago, literally stumbling across a nice picture book in a library when I was, you know, able to con the um, uh, librarian into letting me go to the adult section and. From then on, it it never stopped. And of course, now we know so many extraordinary, amazing things about dinosaurs and that era. When did it bug bite you? Um, Well, first off, my dad, who just passed away a few weeks ago, um, he was a a big rock hound. I mean, he had a jewelry store also, but uh, so he had a passion. His whole life was fossils and mineral samples and things like that. So I kind of grew up you know, having these things that are all around me, you know, enormous shark teeth. Um, we had the bones of a mammoth stacked on top of our piano at one point when I was little. Um, but I, I think for me, like it, I was like five and we went to this, uh, my, my old sister was six. We were at some sort of science fair and I saw back then, this is a long time ago, these prehistoric scenes model kits that they had from a company called Aurora, you know, the Allosaurus and all this stuff. Remember and I was them like, well. Yeah, I was hooked. I got one for Christmas that year, and from that point on, I was really into dinosaurs, and you know, it just it, it just stuck. So, how did that follow you through life? I mean, have you always lived in the country so you could kind of go out and dig around and see what you could find? Uh, I, it was something like when you, in my teen years, you know, I played a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. So you, you know, I read tons of books by. Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard, which obviously a lot of them would have creatures of the prehistoric nature and the stories and stuff. And uh, as I got older, I mean, I worked in the uh, Academy of Sciences when I was in college for a few years in Philadelphia. Yeah, it just kind of like stuck with you. As I became a fisherman as a hobby, then my interest turned into more things of a marine nature, including a lot of prehistoric marine reptiles, creatures of that nature, which loaned itself to the Cronus Rising series novels, which I guess we'll be talking about at some point. Um, a lot of the research, things I already knew, it made it that much easier for me to write these books because I had an extensive repertoire to draw on in terms of information, species, environments, and things of that nature. Hmm. So basically being an outdoor kind of guy, you gravitated to things that were outdoors. Um, You have a very eclectic background. Um, What kind of professional work were you involved in? Uh, When I, you mean when I first got out of college? Yeah, yeah. I used to, I was, went to college to be an animator, you know, working in film and animation. Oh, Disney type stuff. Yeah, and that's, I did that. I was working in New York City doing uh, TV commercials, things of that nature. I did like a, Worked on a Double Dragon to the Revenge Nintendo commercials and Campbell Soup and Sesame Street, the you know Father Nature, the Talking Cloud, and all this other stuff. Um, I gave that up because I was thinking about becoming a veterinarian, 
and that was horrible. Uh, I could never be a vet. Uh, mm. I'm gonna get into that, but um, you know, killing animals ain't my thing. And uh, you know, then I ended up in the fitness field for a number of years. I had a fitness product. I was on QVC with a fitness product, and as that was going on, I started writing on the side, doing freelance stuff, some magazine stuff, a lot of outdoor, like fishing magazines, things of that nature. And eventually I converged into that full time and then started doing novels. Hmm. So I've been around, I've been all over the place. Did you ever consider like comics or graphic novels or stuff? Because to me, one of the most exciting transitions, you know, between the kind of writing I used to do and the kind of writing we're doing for our, our upcoming Mars book is we've incorporated some graphic novel elements into what would normally be a very different kind of book. And uh, the, uh, the mix seems to work really, really well. Well, I, th- you know, you can't do everything. It's something I've discovered. Why not? And, well, there's, <laughs> because there's this thing called sleep that I like to find oh, with okay, once okay. in a while, you know, an hour or two a day, you know, but um, the, the, the artistic background loans itself well to being a novelist for two reasons. The first is that I'm able to exert a lot of control as an indie novelist over my art. So the covers you see for the Cronus Rising series have all been designed by me. Uh, Some of them I physically Mm. made from top to bottom and the rest, uh, when I hired an artist, I had a huge hands-on, you know, involvement with them and providing sketches, layouts, making changes, et cetera. They must have loved that. (laughs) Yeah, not really. (laughs) Exactly. uh, Yeah, but it also works for the writing, you see, because – and I, I know Kimpia was you know, talking about some of the stuff, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But uh, you see, if, you're, if you have an artistic background and you can draw and paint and sculpt and all this other stuff, which – and I'm not bragging. I can. I mean, I, I, and I'm very, very good at it. It helps you when you want to translate an image in your mind into the written word so that you can create that visual art through words now instead of drawing or painting or something like that. And that visual that you create now blossoms in the mind of the reader. And if you can do that exceptionally well, then you can really get an audience that's very devoted to you. Yeah, we used to call them word pictures. And in fact, uh, yeah, we, we'll get into that a little bit more, particularly when, when Kintia comes on, because she was really struck by your, let's see, how do I put this? The vividness of your description. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like being there, but you're reading it as opposed to – we live in such a visual culture, which is part of the reason why we have this section called Radio with Pictures, because when you're dealing with contemporary audiences, millennials, Gen X, whatever, Gen Z, images, television, you know, fast television, 30-second, you know, blasts of information and then on to the next before their attention span changes, seems to be the watchword reading – you know, that old-fashioned, wonderful idea of curling up with a book has really taken a back seat. So, so I think, in part, the, the reason for your success is you manage to create pictures in the, in the minds of the reader who doesn't have to have a, a screen in front of them. It, it's I, well, you want to do that. I mean, there's like a, a lot of writers out there. I hate to say it's a lot of publishers. They tend to shortchange people, I think, because they want to keep the page count down. Now, my books are sizable, five, six hundred pages. Mm. But uh, and I don't, you know, I'm not overly flowery. I just don't shortchange people and make them, you know, have to do all the work themselves because that's 
that's not my job. My job as a writer is to provide the experience to sweep people away as if they're watching a movie. Uh, otherwise, if you have to do all the work and you have to imagine what this animal looks like, what that building looks like, what that robot looks like, what that gun looks like, whatever it might be, how the sights, the smells, everything like the sounds, you know, my job is to create that for you. If I'm not doing that, why, you could read anybody's book. Hmm. In, in, in my work, particularly when I, when I wrote Monuments some years ago, mm-hmm. I wrote it – I mean it, it's nonfiction. It, it's science. But I wrote it in certain sections with enough description hoping to entice some Hollywood director, writer, whatever, to envision this as some kind of feature film. Particularly when you're describing things on a planet you've never been to, like Mars, and certainly structures that no one has ever seen, like what we now know is on Mars. And that's a whole other program, unless you're up on our work, uh, Max. Um, You need that visualization into what you're trying to do, because without it, it's just just words on a page. It just lies there. Yeah, I mean, no, textbooks are boring. I mean... Like I, I had to do a lot of reading on scientific papers before I wrote my first paleo paper, and it's like, ugh. I mean, like, there's no one thing that people liked about the paper that I wrote, even a science paper, was that it had a little bit of a story to it. You know, it, it had flow, and it, it stands out from the rest of the stuff that's out there. I mean, just reading like technical terms all day is like. I might as well be my brother that works with refrigerants <laughs> and, and, writes, and writes technical journals. Like, no. God, no. Mm. So is this paper the item number one in your radio pictures, the How Plesiosauruses Swim? Oh, yeah. that's yeah. I think okay. it's on our list of stuff. Okay. All right. Well, we will get into that. Uh, we got a couple, three minutes to the bottom of the hour. Give me a thumbnail perspective on dinosaurs. You've been involved with this, obviously – for a long time, how has the field and the knowledge base changed between the time when I grew up? You know, dinosaurs are cold-blooded relatives of basically lizards. In fact, the name comes from the Greek, you know, fearsome uh, creature or fearsome something creature. Um, how has the science of dinosaurs changed between the time you first got intrigued and and now? Well, I mean, I'm. 55 years old. I'm no spring chicken. And uh, when I was a kid going to the Museum of Natural History, for example, in New York City, um, one of my favorite old hangouts. Oh, my gosh. uh, Yeah, that's when, uh, I mean, there was so many uh, fossils on display that were there that were, as we know now, were scientifically inaccurate. Uh, there was, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex was standing vertically upright, like you saw in like old movies, like you know the original King Kong and even older movies. Um, you mean you mean the one where they where they pitted two, um, um, you know, like I think it was iguanas and maybe a crocodile, and they would paste fins on their back and that kind of stuff. Oh no, that was like God before the you know there were animal protection rights out there and stuff. No, I mean like stop motion animation. Ah, okay. Where the okay. dinosaur stood completely upright, like a person with its tail dragging behind it, instead of uh, what we now know that they were shifted forward with the tail as a counterweight, etc. I mean now we know that that they're warm blooded or at least semi warm blooded animals. Uh, you know it's just totally different. The some some had feathers, etc. You know, so it's an entirely new world in terms of like how we perceive these incredible prehistoric creatures. Which also, as we know, birds are actually technically avian dinosaurs, so they're not completely gone. That's what's so amazing. 
they're not completely gone. Okay, uh, we're we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. Um, hold it there. My guest is um, Max Hawthorne, who is an amateur paleontologist, and he has translated that uh, extraordinary uh, interest into extraordinary writing and extraordinary fiction. But the fiction is based on reality. In honor of our guest tonight, uh, we're going to be dipping in and out of Jurassic Park, as you may hear in the background. Um, It just seems to me that this subject is so entrancing, and it opens up such questions of who was here before us and what happened, what really happened. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions have not been asked, yet need answering. The Other Side of the News is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of The Other Side of the News. Thank you. 
the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight, live, cast live on this uh, summer solstice, 2020, June 20th, here in the land of enchantment, which has been a little less than enchanting lately, but uh, it comes up, uh, goes up and down, and uh, anyway, our guest tonight is uh, Max uh, Hawthorne. You know, Max, I keep wanting to say Max Headroom, (laughs) 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 which was one of my favorites. Uh, when they were airing it, very innovative, very creative. Okay, let me ask you, as a paleontologist, amateur or, or otherwise, yes. the overriding question I've had for decades about dinosaurs, and I saw a note the other day, and it got swept away. You know, you get so much stuff coming into your inbox, and I clicked on it, and it was like, oh, I got to look, go back and look at that. And when I went back, I couldn't find it, and and it's it's like one of those huge major you know, questions of life, like when you close the refrigerator door, does the light go out? Here's the question. Ready? What's the purpose of those stupid little arms on Tyrannosaurus Rex? Well, uh, actually, I actually did a, a big blog post on that very topic. So uh, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a topic near and dear to my heart, so to speak. So, um, well, this is the situation. So this is my personal theory on it, and I, I, I base my theories on hard science and common sense. So tyrannosaurs and a lot of theropod dinosaurs, the two-legged meat-eating varieties that were out there, a lot of their primary prey were ceratopsians. And ceratopsians are the horned dinosaurs. Oh, I was going to say, you're going to have to do a lot of uh, defining tonight because all these wonderfully Latin terms are going over right over my head, but uh, go ahead. So horned dinosaurs like Triceratops, you know, which was in the first Jurassic Park movie, the sick dinosaur lying down on its side. Yep, remember? yep, yep, yep. Okay. So they have – They're the ones with all those plates lining their spine that still are not – no one seems to know what they do either? No, those are – that's like stegosaurs. Oh, right? I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah, no. no, so uh, like a, a ceratopsian would be like the rhinoceros of its day. Got it, got they it. They had horns on their face that they used to protect themselves from predators and or compete with other you know members of their species – and frills, bony frills that protected their neck and shoulders as well. So uh, they were sort of like the, the bison or something like that of their day, you could also think. And, of course, like the bison had uh, saber tooths and things like that that preyed on it. Ceratopsians had things that preyed on them, and these included tyrannosaurs. So if you think about it, if you're uh, 
this is my personal theory on it, Tyrannosaurus rex, for example, is hunting a triceratops. And T-Rex has evolved this enormous head. And his head is designed, it's filled with possibly the most powerful terrestrial bite of all time. Tremendous crushing force, big banana-sized teeth with serrations on both sides, tremendous power. And this head is designed to do to crush bone and to kill, and of course to shred flesh. So when it encounters a ceratopsian like a triceratops, its goal is to not get into a slug fest with this thing and get injured, because no predator wants to do that. He wants to grab that triceratops by a weak point, usually by the neck to kill it, but that frill is in the way. So he's gonna grab that bony frill, crunch into it with those bone penetrating teeth, and try and pull that triceratops to the ground where he can or she can either finish it off and or other members of the, the Tyrannosaurus's pack. Believe it or not, they call a group of Tyrannosaurus a terror of Tyrannosaurus. Oh, I really? I swear <laughs> to God, it's wonderful. I got a terror of Tyrannosaurus after me. Let's get moving. But, um, and, you know, finish it off, get it by the throat, whatever, and, you know, oscillate the beast to baby. And over there, so, there's a crazy full of clowns. <laughs> so if you're facing this this ceratopsian, you know, Tyrannosaurus is a big, tall animal. It's higher up in the ground than its opponent. And it's got those jaws, so it doesn't need anything else. Those arms are actually now a hindrance and a vulnerable point. If those arms are protruding and triceratops just swinging that head back and forth and looking to impale its opponent, it can hook into one of those arms with those huge brow horns and either rip it open or off and risk the Tyrannosaurus wrists bleeding out, mm. and or it can, the T-Rex can be pulled to the ground, which can be a devastating injury, and or once it's on the ground, it can be impaled. I was going to say, it would be probably difficult for it to get up quickly. Right. So those arms are now a, a, an evolutionary problem. And it, so what happens is the Tyrannosaurus with the larger arms are – going to be the ones that are more likely to fall in combat, shall we say, fighting, you know, feeding on ceratopsians, and they're not going to pass on their genetics. So the ones with the shorter arms that are retracted and closer to the body and safe and out of harm's way, more sensibly, will be the ones that will survive, will produce, and genes like that will continue on and on and on. The only thing about the T-Rex's arms that are interesting, though, is they're as small as they are, they're still tremendously powerful. Uh, like they did a test, and each one, I believe, is capable of curling over 400 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine that? So they're, you know, the size of a man's arm, but the bones are many times thicker, and the muscles much, much more powerful. So, you know, it's, the theories abound as to that they're used for mating, to holding onto the female, <laughs> uh, to hooking onto large prey, you know, if they're, like, in close, which I don't really buy that part because they're still so small. But I think they also probably had pushing power, and when the Tyrannosaurus I'm sorry, it's late. Tyrannosaurus was like on the ground, let's say, went to get up. It probably was able to give a little extra push with those stubby arms to help its upper body move up and help its waist shift back as it lumbered to its feet. Hmm. So that's my personal theory on why Tyrannosaurus and other theropods like that, especially the ones that preyed on horned dinosaurs, you know, their arms were shorter for safety purposes. If you have something like Allosaurus, which was a, like a, almost like a lion that would chase down prey and jump on it. You know, it needed larger arms that hooked forelimbs to dig into its prey, and it was like tearing at it like a big cat with like teeth and claws at the so same time. So it's really about the strategy of prey capture and kill that exactly. dictated the morphology. 
were those little arms, those stupid, I mean, they're really ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Were they, were they capable of kind of being folded out of the way where they are particularly articulable? I think the term would be. Well, the theropods could not turn their hands palm down like a, like you and I can, right. They, they don't work like that. So they would typically be almost like vertical, like in a thumbs up position. They could move in or out to grab like raptors, like or like a bird flapping its wings. If you think about how a bird moves, birds can flap their wings towards each other, like flapping, but they can't turn their wings. Palm right. Down. Right. Right. The bones don't work like that. So the same thing with theropods, they could pull them back, you know, like bring the elbows back, that type of thing and tuck them in that way but the palms would be facing each other or t- touching its chest or something like that. Mm. But that would seem to be a safe position if they were, let's say, in attack mode and they didn't want something to happen to those, those arms. Right. Well, also, when you've got the biggest, the baddest bite on the planet, you don't need arms at that point. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. like crocodiles don't need, you know, limbs to no, grab their prey. No. Yeah. They just go for the bite. Hmm. Let's go. Let's go look at this whole cold-blooded, hot-blooded thing. Um, you've watched the morphology of the field and famous paleontologists coming out and kind of recanting and all that. What's what's the what's the latest science on that? Cold-blooded versus warm-blooded. I think the uh, from what I've I've seen, and I, I don't read paleo papers day and night, so I wouldn't say that I'm completely up to date on everything and anything. I, I only research stuff that applies to like things that I'm focused on at the moment. You got to remember, I'm a full-time novelist, so the paleo thing is like a side hobby that comes with writing books about prehistoric life. But um, the uh, one of the interesting finds that they've had in the last few years has to do with marine reptiles, and they've discovered that uh, like plesiosaurs, including the enormous whale-sized pliosaurs and things like that, that were like the orcas or sperm whales of their day, ichthyosaurs, and even mosasaurs had body temperatures that were much higher than people suspected. Now, hang on. How do we know that? Uh, They they do radioisotopes in order to test that and compare the findings based on known species of today and back then, uh, that type of stuff, and also based on the calculations of what the water temperatures were as well. It's uh, a little outside my area. So it's like looking at oxygen isotopes in ice cores. That's how Mm -hmm. the uh, climatologists chart previous, you know, epics of temperature up and down, they're, they're selected by means of radioisotope separations, you know, heavy isotopes accumulate during certain temperatures and lighter isotopes during other temperatures. You're saying that the, um, the folks that have been analyzing actual dinosaur fossils are able to look at separation of isotopes and then equate that with body temperatures? That's remarkable. They're, they're able to figure out what the water temperature was back then, what the temperatures of, are of comparative other species out there, and by doing that, they're apparently able to figure out what their body temperatures are, and it's astounding. Um, plesiosaurs, for example, had body temperatures as high or higher than today's cetaceans, and meaning like a, like a, a killer whale has a body temperature very similar to yours and mine. Okay. So they had some body temperatures like you know in the high 90s or even 100 degrees. So these are warm-blooded animals with layers of blubber that protected them from the, the you know, the water I was going to say, if you're a big creature immersed in a lot of water, the mm-hmm. heat transfer to the water is ferocious. So almost axiomatically, they couldn't be at ambient because they would have just stilled into, into 
emotion, immobility, if they were dependent on the outside environment. Yeah, so you're basically, you, if you look at an ichthyosaur, which is these, uh, it's good, it means fish lizard. And it, they, these are the ones that look like dolphins, but with, with the tail is vertical instead of horizontal. Right. And they have that long extended snout filled with narrow teeth, with sharp teeth. So those animals would literally have been very dolphin-like. They would have had blubber covering them, like brown adipose tissue, like we see in today's leatherback turtle and such. And that would have kept them warm and helped them maintain their, their body temperature in, in marine environments, even in, I mean, there, there are specimens now that they believe were in polar conditions in the Arctic, and these marine reptiles were able to comfortably survive there. So they were able to do what, what walruses do today. Hmm. By the way, the update, planet. update. Kinthea has posted a mace, Max's uh, largest, uh, most senior Siberian forest cat. Oh, my God, mace is a pussycat. Isn't yeah. he adorable? Oh, and he's got blue eyes. Yes. Wow. Shocking blue eyes. He's like Frank Sinatra. Ah. Uh, uh. And he sings too. <laughs> Isn't that his next uh, next uh, you know, small adventure? When you hear someone singing, you'll come out and there he is. Oh, I'm gonna get him. Uh, he's gonna have his own album one day. You'll see. <laughs> okay, so um, the body temperature thing. How has that changed the whole dinosaur eco field? Because when we all thought they were cold blooded. You know, resting in the sun like lizards, that kind of thing. Um, but the fact that they now were kind of, I mean, were they really, because they laid eggs. So how could you, how, how could you think of them as mammals unless you think of the platypus as kind of a melange of those traits? But birds lay eggs and they're warm-blooded. Mm, that's true. But birds are descended yeah. from dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the ostrich is a warm-blooded animal and it lays huge, huge eggs. You know, the emu, the cassowary. Mm-hmm. But you want to see a living dinosaur, see a cassowary up close. My God, that's something to stare at. But uh, I, I get like, uh, we used to, when we used to live in New Jersey, there was a place up there that had these, uh, my, my daughter was really little then. We used to take these little train rides, and they had all these emus and stuff that, you know, this little zoo the train would go through. And you could see them real close from like two, three feet away. And they have these red eyes, which is where I, I use their eyes for my pliosaurs, in fact. And it's just like looking at, a big scary lizard but with feathers you know and you could see this development but i mean these animals were able to adapt to the entire planet pretty much you know there's the whole notion of feathers or no feathers on a lot of them you know those debates still continue especially with tyrannosaurs and stuff but uh they were highly adapted to every environment they ruled this planet you know top to bottom and every ecological niche in it marine reptiles ruled the sea the the dinosaurs ruled the land and the skies they, they were something. Hmm. And then something shattering happened. And yeah. the hundreds of millions of years mm-hmm. world and domination disappeared. Um, have you been tracking any of, any, any of that science? In terms of like meteors, asteroids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the whole Alvarez um, model. I, I only like see what's on the general news. When I was writing the first Cronus Rising book, I had to do a lot of research on asteroids, and in particular, the one that struck the Yucatan Peninsula, obviously, and you know caused the uh, the KT impact and you know extinction, et cetera. But beyond that, I you know there's just not enough time in the day. <laughs> there never is. No. Well, see, one of the remarkable things that we learned as we were pursuing our own separate research, which basically is 
you know, looking at extraterrestrial archaeology as is this side, you know, discipline that kind of came up, which is the physics, the whole hyperdimensional torsion field model. And 19.5 degrees is a very important number in that in that physics model. One of the things you find as you look through the solar system is that nature, you know, the universe creates upwellings of energy from stars to planets at 19.5, like the big shield volcanoes in Hawaii, 19.5 north, uh, Nix Olympica on Mars, 19.5 north, the great red spot on Jupiter, 19.5 south, and on and on and on. One of the really stunning things that has added in my mind, extraordinary complexity about what really happened to the dinosaurs is the discovery that 66 million years ago, when you account for, you know, um, um, continental drift, tectonic, you know, plate motion, and this is my item number three, GPS coordinates of the Chicxulub Mexican crater in the Yucatan, which has now been kind of pinned down by Alvarez and the others as, as that's the impact crater of the asteroid that did in the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's located at 19.5 degrees. Indicating wow. whatever asteroid hit the Earth 66 million years ago and completely eliminated the dinosaurs that we love and cherish did so under some kind of intelligent directional control because the odds of that happening by accident are just Mm -hmm. infinitesimal which opens up a huge can of worms as to what really happened 66 million years ago in this solar system and we unless you want to don't have to go any deeper into that tonight because we're not going to have time to solve it but it just puts a whole new light on what happened to these creatures and in my own personal you know speculations kind of an added note as to why we're all so fascinated by dinosaurs it's like there's some big missing thing in our background that we intuit that we kind of grasp at some level but until recently the science wasn't there to say yeah something really weird happened to the dinosaurs i'm with you (laughs) okay (laughs) let me let me move on then um when did you when did you decide? I mean, oh no no, let me ask this one first. You've been collecting bones and fossils and whatever forever. What's your most interesting find, personally? You. Um. Well, I, well, the, the, to be direct, I don't like very few of the specimens in my collection are ones that I've dug out of the ground. Okay. So my, I do a lot of buying, trading. Uh, that type of stuff, you know, working directly with dealers, you know, uh, getting stuff privately when things come out there. I will say this, my dad, uh, you know, as I mentioned, just passed away. Um, he left me something that I'm very excited to have that he's had since the early 1950s, um, back when you know, he was in the, the Korean War, et cetera, uh, which is a tooth molar from a gigantopithecus. And I'm very excited to add that to my collection because Gigantopithecus has been for many years this is prehistoric ape that was like 10 or even 12 feet tall and which many people for many years have considered one of the prime candidates for Sasquatch. Mm. And there were very few of these in the world 
and yours truly is going to have one in his collection case. <laughs> so, yes. And that's something that's bragging rights. Let me tell you. Wow. You know, and I promised I would never sell it and I never will. Um, you know, I'm sure once I kick it, my daughter will be, daughter will be like, all right, eBay, let's get this thing out there. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I have a lot of fascinating stuff, a lot of fossils. I will tell you one, I didn't find this myself, but I got it through a dealer, is uh, I have a, a very large Mosasaur fossil, as in, you know, the marine lizard from uh, Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting about this is, and I, I, I'm going to have to see about, like, either talking to some people about a documentary or doing a Kickstarter for it, but um, I have this enormous Mosasaur jaw, and... It has uh, a gigantic bite mark on it from a much larger mosasaur. Uh oh! And you can see the tooth punctures, crunch, 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 crunch. There's no denying it. And uh, so basically, the the animal that the jaw came from was a, pr- a pretty big animal, probably about 40 feet long. And a lot of paleontologists are of the opinion that you know the animals didn't get much bigger than 40 or 50 feet at most. But the animal that killed it and the bite was fatal. The, the punctures are not healed, and in fact, I believe that the bone where the jaw is broken, it actually was shattered during this attack. Ah. Uh, but uh, I, the animal that killed it was at least 70 feet long, which is enormous. I mean, that would put it probably in a 40-ton range, maybe even 50 tons. I'd say about 50 tons altogether. So it's a sperm whale-sized marine reptile, and I have evidence that this thing you know, proof positive that that there was one that size out there, and it's going to be make make for an exciting documentary to put this thing you know together, the whole story behind it, murder mystery, that type of thing. Hmm. Which leads me into this question. Um, I've been looking. I mean, I, I I now know enough physics to know that this is not a crazy idea. But have you ever considered, as I always have considered, the idea of these incredible creatures? these dinosaurs from the Jurassic and the Cretaceous and their sheer physicality, their sheer tonnage, both mm-hmm. on land, brontosaurus, etc., and in the ocean. Have you ever wondered physically how that was possible? Uh, well, to use an Ian, Ian Malcolm line, life finds a way. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, you know, there are physical adaptations for it. Like the, the the huge sauropods had columnar legs that were designed to support their weight, and their bones had cross sections. Now they know that were designed for shock absorption and to reduce weight a little bit, but also to absorb tremendous you know, loads, let's say. And obviously, the way they walked was designed for that. But uh, I think the largest they just found out that the largest sauropod now, I believe, and the largest land animal of all time known, I believe is going to be Barosaurus. And that's, uh, I saw a year or two, uh, two back, I think it was Darren Nash that was uh, looking at it. They have so many fossils in museums that just sit there in drawers and crates and boxes, you know, millions of them that never see the light of day. Mm. And these discoveries are just sitting there hidden. And even the paleontologists don't know about it. So they get this enormous sauropod vertebrae and they're looking at it and they realize, wait, this is from a barosaurus and it's one of the smaller vertebrae from the neck. And now all of a sudden you realize that you've got this like five foot bone, neck bones, one bone, and you realize that this entire animal dwarfs any known sauropod, including Argentinosaurus, et cetera. So yeah, they got gigantic in the water 
it's different. I mean, blue whales can sometimes be 200 tons, mm -hmm. but the water supports a lot of that weight. You know, so it's it's there's a lot more flexibility, shall we say, there for growth, you know, supersize, mm. etc. On land, you've got it's it's a different story. But I even I think the biggest terrestrial sauropods are probably over a hundred tons sparasaurus, and it's it's ilk. There's a term you don't hear very often nowadays, ilk. Nope, uh, nope, nope. It's, it's kind of like that great line from uh, Forbidden Planet, "Monsters from the Id." One of my favorite movies. Oh, uh, mine too. Mine too. Okay, so I'll say, what I'm kind of creeping up on is this idea. Have you ever considered or have you ever encountered the idea that the reason we have this extraordinary hundreds of millions of years of the dominance of these extraordinary huge creatures is mm. because gravity itself was different? Um, I, I mean, I look at things in terms of predator-prey relations and things of that nature. I think that the reason that hominids didn't come to pass, so to speak, is that the dinosaurs were so dominant, so prevalent, that our most primitive ancestors, which were effectively like a tree shrew or something, were basically just uh, like an M&M to some of these creatures. Hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're what would have been like a human being 150 million years ago is on a tree branch and a, a raptor's walking by and goes, oh, great, pops one in his mouth and there goes that line, hmm. you know. Gene pool just got wiped out. So it's like very hard for you to progress and develop. And, you know, as people, hu human beings, even primitive man, we don't have a lot of weaponry. We're not formidable animals, predators, etc. Without our technology, we're, we're, you know, it's hard to survive. Prehistoric man had to hang on and use fire and stone tools, weapons, things of that nature. But you're dealing with, you know, saber-toothed cats and predatory bears and all sorts of things like that, you, you know, you don't have high-powered rifles and shotguns and things of that nature. So just getting to that point, you, you had to get rid of all those super predators like the dinosaurs in order for us to have a chance to evolve from the dust mm. into something into what we are today. So without the big extinction event, the KT event, we really would not be here. I okay. don't think we would. Hold it there. We're at the top of sure. the hour. My uh, guest this morning is uh, Max uh, Hawthorne. I keep wanting to say the other word. <laughs> and we're talking dinosaurs. And when we come back, we're going to talk writing about dinosaurs. But before we get to that, I have another personal kind of question I'm going to ask. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Jurassic Park from John Williams in the background. Do not touch that dial. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And 
you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.